If I were a, an ordinary citizen and I have lost my daughter to drugs, she gets pregnant five times a year, she is despoiled because of drugs, I've lost my son and another son, bullshit, I will kill you. I will kill you. I will take the law into my own hands. I will not take sitting down. Hello, I'm Liam Gammon and I'm the editor of New Mandala. You're listening to part three of our series of podcasts that take a look at the Philippines beyond the cliches. I'm here with our Philippines editor, Nicole Carato. And Nicole, I don't think there's really any mystery as to who was speaking at, up the front there. Well, no mystery at all, Liam. In fact, I think we are all desensitized with that statement by Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte. I will kill you is a word he always uses in relation to criminals. And so I think we need to unpack the underlying philosophy why this line is so popular. And that is the view that the Philippines has to be tougher on crime. And so this podcast features the criminologist uh, Clark Jones from the Research School of Psychology here at the ANU, who has spent extensive periods of time doing ethnographic work in some of the most notorious prisons in the Philippines. There's so much to learn in unpacking the cliche that the Philippines has to be tough on crime. Hello, listeners. It's Liam, the editor here again. Later on in this podcast, you'll notice that the names of certain individuals and organisations have been bleeped out of the recording. For a whole variety of reasons, which ought to be pretty clear from the context later on, we and our guests decided not to identify certain people and institutions by name in the podcast. With that out of the way, here's Nicole speaking with Dr. Clark Jones. Hello, Clark. Welcome. Thanks very much. All right, so the idea that the state needs to be tough on crime obviously is not unique to the Philippines. But before we do a deep dive of your work on the Philippine prison system, let's first set the scene. I mean, what does it mean to be tough on crime and where, why is this idea so appealing to so many people? Well, it's not just a problem to the Philippines. I think it's a problem um, also in uh, a lot of Western countries, Australia, for example, uh, United States, UK. And there's been a, a very strong turnaround about um, being tough on crime, which results in high, high number of um, arrests, uh, high number of prosecutions, and then of course the uh, flow-on effect is uh, large prison populations. And that's probably my, my main concern and my main focus of my study is what, what do you do with those increasing prison populations? Now the Philippines is a, a unique example because of the uh, tough on crime, particularly around, uh, around drugs, but also around terrorism. In the Philippines, the number of cases on backlog now is around 700,000 pending cases, drug cases, with only around uh, 1,400, 1,500 lawyers to try and clear those cases through the courts. Now, on its own, that's, that's, that's a bit of a crisis in itself. But when you consider that the prison population is already up to around on average 605% overcrowded. That's, that's incredibly overcrowded. You compare that to Australia where we can be over 100% overcrowded. In one of the particular jails, Quezon City Jail for example, the population is around 3,600% overcrowded. So instead of having the, the ideal occupancy of around uh, in the Philippines one to four per cell, you've got over 100 uh, inmates in a cell. So you, can you imagine one toilet, uh, inadequate washing facilities, food is scarce, and, and so you, you're talking about sheer survival. 
But what's unique to the Philippines, if the same situation was in Australia or in a Western prison, there'd be mayhem, there'd be death, there'd be carnage, you know, and I'm not exaggerating, there'd be all sorts of problems. But the Philippines is a unique place. I mean, how do they deal and how do they co cope? How do inmates cope with, with that level of congestion and that level of uh, overcrowding? And it's, um, it's, it's fascinating. But getting back to the question about um, being tough on crime, um, at some point, uh, and particularly in the Philippines, it's going to reach it's going to reach an absolute crisis. What's the tipping point of those prisons and jails? When can they no longer cope? What's going to happen? Right, and I think what's interesting about your work is you talk about the kinds of innovations that take place in the Philippine prison system, given the limitations and resources. And you use the word uh, shared governance in yes. correctional management. And of course, I'd like to share my most utmost admiration to the kind of work you've done. I mean, you've done ethnographic work in some of the most notorious prisons in the Philippines. And one of your field sites is the New Believed Prison. And for those who yes. aren't very familiar um, with Philippine context, it's the most notorious penitentiary in the country. And you've done, um, yeah, spent a lot of time working in this context. So tell us about this research and what you've discovered about shared governance. Well, just, just by way of background, we've spent, um, myself and Dr. Raymond Narag, we've spent, well, he's spent longer, but we've spent over 10 years doing ethnographic, in other words, uh, participant observation. So we've spent time in prison, uh, countless number of interviews with, uh, with inmates, with gang leaders, with terrorist offenders, with prison and jail, you know, sorry, I should say in this case, prison officials. Um, so we've sort of a, quite a cross-section of people we've spoken to around, around the environment. We've also experienced the environment, which is really important. So I'm very critical of, um, of the uh, fly-by-nighters who, who spend a day uh, talking to an inmate and then they make observations about the prison. We learn a new thing each time and it's a, a quite a fascinating environment. But also to provide some context, we're talking about uh, over 17,500 inmates in nine square hectares in the maximum security prison. That, that's, that's huge. So it's, it's like a, uh, a micro city. You've got shops, restaurants, uh, hamburger stores, arts and craft stores, hardware stores, barber shops, cafe. Um, I, I can remember even having a uh, silver service dinner provided by the Batang city, city Jail Gang. And it's one of the best meals I've ever had in the Philippines, actually. What did actually. they serve out of curiosity? And it was blackened tuna and it was wow. um, uh, other fish dishes and chicken. And um, it, it was quite unique and the inmates served. So at that point in time, I mean, things changed, but at that point in time, um, inmates were learning uh, sort of restaurant skills and, um, and, and cooking skills. And in fact, they ran a, uh, a show called Iron Bar Chef where it was a cooking competition, you know, similar to Iron Chef on, on TV. So they took their cooking skills, but this was not provided by the prison. This was provided by the inmates, by the gangs. So when you have too many inmates, so you've got an, one guard per 80, uh, 80 inmates, there's not a lot of resources to, for the inmates. So the inmates can either sit there and rot or they don't. Filipino in, uh, inmates are quite unique in relation to their coping me mechanisms to deal with what's called the pains of imprisonment and, they're in, uh, and they're, they're, their life inside. When we talk about life inside, it's not like our life, it's their life inside can be up to 45 years. And in maximum security, it's basically from 20 years on. Now, going into that sort of environment, we talk about prisonisation. In other words, people become institutionalised to the... In the Philippines, they do get institutionalised, but they're, 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 when they enter prison, they don't lose their skills, they don't lose their identity, they don't lose their family contact. So they maintain their, if they're a doctor, 
they stay a doctor within the and they help within the hospital. If they're an engineer, they go and help with the uh, the facilities and the building of the facilities. And there's all sorts of trades. Um, inmates also. There's an inmate who is a, a who was a colleague of Dr. Narag, and he developed a, a cafe sort of restaurant um, in the Batang City Jail gang area. He now runs three rest three cafes outside of the prison in uh, around Muntalupa. Um, which employs ex-inmates and uh, ex-offenders and, um, and their families. So this, this is not government funding. This is all about the inmates doing it for, and, and supporting themselves. They run computer, uh, computer training, computer workshops. So there's a lot of positive sides. There's also the negative sides because there's all, you know, we talk about contraband and, and I've, I, you know, look, I spent time in the, in the, uh, in the military and I, I've seen some pretty fancy weapons inside New Billabood prison. So, you know, it's it's not there's it, it's not always good, and of course, as the as the uh, president right, uh, president of the Philippines um, rightly observed, that there was a lot of drug problems within the prison. I would argue that the shabu, shabu trade, the methamphetamine trade in the Philippines, was operated from inside the prison, and in the early days, and I'm talking um, early days, you know, probably uh, five or ten years ago, um, there were, you know, what I know of a couple of um, uh, labs inside the prison. Now they're long gone, but. So there, there are two sides to this. One, there's this, this incredible coping strategy and there's also the illicit trade that goes on in prisons. After all, it is a, full, a prison full of, um, uh, full of offenders. Right, but I think the critics would obviously say that the problem here is that you put people in prison precisely to deprive them of their civil liberties. And yes. the way you portrayed how they cope inside prison and to perform as if they're productive members of society goes against that logic, which I guess reminds us of this whole clamor for being tougher on crime, that these people shouldn't be able to do this inside prison. So what's the rationale for this kind of model that, from my reading, you're kind of celebratory about? Look. It, it is hard to understand that, but but remember, they are deprived. They are locked away. It's you know, you, I mean, if I mind you, if I could make my choice, if I if I was an offender and I had to spend time, I'd prefer to spend time in a Philippine prison than an Australian prison. But however, they are still deprived of liberty. They can't they can't um, uh, simply leave the prison when they want, although they do work work ways around that too, by the way. So they are they are de they are deprived of normal living. But if we're thinking about punishment, we're thinking about what's the point of what's the point of prison. Well, it should be around rehabilitation. Now, I would I would argue that there are more there, there are more chances of rehabilitation in that open environment because it's not all about rehabilitation programs. It's also um, the ability to uh, spend time with family. Now, up until um, Duterte came into the presidency, there was there was the ability for families to visit on, you know, almost on a seven day, uh, seven days a week into the prison. Children, you know, were seen. There was even a zoo inside the prison. There was playgrounds that was built built by the inmates. So the point I'm getting to is there was uh, inmates still maintain family contact. Most inmates maintain family contact and and um, were able to see their children. That has a, a massive effect. Firstly, it, it limits the chances of family breaking down. But it also, there's lots of research to say that um, inclusion in uh, family involvement during incarceration has strong positive rehabilitation effects, but also uh, helps inmates readjust once they leave prison. So the thing that's always annoyed me in the Philippines is we, there's always Western countries, the US, Australia, the UK, um, European countries as well, come into the Philippines and say, this is how you should do it. 
but our systems are failing. Our systems are probably failing more than the Philippines. So I would like one day for the Philippines, for the Philippine Corrections to get, get out, go overseas and tell others how they do it. Because there's, there are unique aspects that I, I sort of liken the Philippine correctional system. This might sound crazy. Shows you I've probably been in too long. But the Philippines system, prisons correctional system, is closer to the, to the sort of Scandinavian prison, prison systems, which has the lowest recidivism rate in the world. Now, that's because it's an open prison system. Inmates can maintain their sense of identity, their skills. They still maintain their contact with family. Now, this is what happens in the Philippines. In the Philippines, it's very cultural, though, because you know, sharing of food and family is, is critical for, for you know, sense of identity. And, you know, you know, and I love that about the, uh, about the prison system. So, um, you know, and I'll, re I'll, I'll state that I'm, you know, I'm not getting warm and fuzzy about prisoners, but, but what I am saying is there's got to be better ways of doing it. And what the Philippines does is, is, is not all bad. You know, if you want to put the, 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 the corruption and the contraband and those things aside, um, there are some things, very positive things that happen. But of course, we are now in a very different context. We have a president who won based on the platform of being tough on crime, um, no shame about calling for the deaths of suspected criminals. How does that affect uh, prison governance? It's had an incredible effect. And this is, this is the, the real shame. So I, I visited, uh, I was there just before Christmas and um, you know, I've been writing my book so I haven't got back again, uh, but, but we'll, we're soon to return. But one thing we did notice on our, on our last visit um, and another round of interviews with the, uh, you know, the usual suspects, the people that we've, we've always uh, had a relationship with over the last 10 years or so, is we've never seen so much strain on, uh, on, on the faces of the inmates that we talk to. So what's happened is the, now the prison, rather than the, um, the prison being run by uh, Bureau of Correction staff, it's now run by the Special Action Force of the Philippine National Police. So it's, it's, like, you know, it's like getting the SAS, Special Air Service, running the prison here in Australia. They don't, they don't, they don't have skills to run prisons. They're police. They're elite police. So you're getting um, abuse happening. You're getting the coping mechanisms are being shut down. So visitation, um, and if I want to make, talk specifically about terrorist defenders, if, it, if the family's going to come up from the south, up from Mindanao, they're only allowed 20 minutes per month to see their, uh, their, their, their loved ones inside. Compared to the previous contacts where, how many hours do they get? Oh, they, they could get as much contact as they want. They, you know, they, obviously there's a lockdown at, um, at night time. Lockdown in the Philippines is different from lockdown in Australia or the US, but um, there was regular visitation. But now it's almost, once you shut down that, that vital family support structure, you're asking for a lot of trouble. So, for, you know, if I can focus on terrorist offenders, you, where there was once very little sign of prison radicalisation or, or um, illicit activities happening inside, now I would argue the whole sentiment's changed where there's a high likelihood of um, increasing anger uh, leading to potential acts of violence from the inside because they're not allowed with those usual coping mechanisms. I mean, inmates will eventually adapt, but in the short term, um, it's, uh, it's incredible to see what's happened. I I've never seen, and we spoke to two, two of the uh, inmate leader groups, leader groups within the Muslim inmates, and um, they weren't happy people. 
in fact, they're likely to sort of fight with each other. There's sort of two groups. One of the, the sort of the businessmen from Mindanao that um, sort of pearl farmers and um, into um, uh, pirated DVDs and, you know, different sorts of stuff. Um, or also other sort of criminal offending. But And then you've got the terrorist groups, Abisayef, uh, MLAF and Jamar Islamia, although there's not many there now, and uh, soon Malte Group and... But when you start to cut down the, uh, the sort of the coping mechanisms, you start to get conflict between groups. You'll also get con conflict between the various um, gang gang leaders. So frustration starts to build, and this is the thing. I mean, I, I, out of all the years, I've only been one time where I've ever been threatened within the prison prison environment, and that was my own stupidity when I took out my uh, wallet to buy a, uh, a Chinese a pa painting by a Chinese drug dealer, and you know I've never done the same mistake since. But all other times. There's, there's an element of respect and, and very strong gang rules that prevent, um, you know, visitors are very much protected. And, and once again, the only time I've seen a female visitor um, ever accosted was by an English inmate who, you know, jumped, uh, he was on his BMX bike and he was riding past and jumped uh, from, the, from his bike. He suffered the consequences. Um, you know, I won't go into details there, but um, the inmates and the gangs have their own punishment systems, but there's very strong rules. It's, it's I would argue it's the they police themselves within the prison environment, not the guards. It's just fascinating, and it's um, you know, uh, you know, from rules and control mechanisms um, on on the positive side. But again, I, I stress there is a negative side to all this as well. Right, and of course, I know you're not in the business of prescribing what the Philippines should do when it comes to the prison system. But of course, there is also a lot of attention with the corruption scandals. This has been used as basis to delegitimize former Department of Justice Secretary and now Senator Leila de Lima. So I think um, the curiosity here from the governance perspective is while on the other hand there are positive aspects to allow um, inmates to have their own governance system, um, but on the other hand you also I guess want a clear state structure to officially sanction or punish um, offenders within the prison system. So where is the right balance here? And that, that's a very good question. Um, you know if I, if I was to put my finger on the biggest problem within the system. I mean, overcrowding is huge, isn't it? But corruption. Corruption's always been a major, a major issue. And I've seen corruption, and I don't want to mention, uh, mention names, but I've, I've seen um, corruption from the, from the you know, prison level um, uh, Bureau of Correction staff through to, to the leadership. And, and we, and I'm going to be careful here, we've, you know, known about and reported activity through the uh, the gangs. And you know, when I talk about gangs, there's there's always been 12 gangs. They were controlled by two chairmen, which was uh, the sort of the top dogs of the gangs. They each had six gangs each. And these have, they, they've been uh, well and truly on, on TV and uh, Philippine media. Um, and I knew them very well. Um, Did they make you listen to their CDs? What's that, sorry? Did they make you listen to their CDs? Oh, well gave me a CD and I played it once at home and um, it was nearly divorced, put it that way. <laughs> but um, it, it um, you know, look, I, I, you know, again, I, I say on one side, I mean, it's great that he was uh, producing music and um, he, he was a, a real, you know, character, if I can put it that way. Um, and then <laughs> had his own TV studio and I mentioned, one, mentioned the Iron Bar Chef, but they also had one program called New, Bil New Billabids Got Talent which is, you know, singing and, and different sorts of programs. But he did a lot of filming and um, uh, involved inmates in um, learning about 
you know, movie and, and videos and all that sort of stuff. So there are some positive aspects to that too. But however, through the Sigur Sigur Commando gang provided a lot of the protection for the uh, Chinese drug lords and Chinese drug markets. He, he you know, may, may have said otherwise, but he, um, I never saw him actively involved in, you know, I, don't, I don't want to incriminate him in any way, but I never saw any, uh, um, you know, I knew of a very personal side of him as well as his family background and his upbringing and, you know, sort of, as a criminologist, I need to sort of understand where people got to where, you know, like where they are. But he had a, you know, I won't go into the gruesome aspects of his record. On the other hand was a, um, you know, he may, may have been, uh, allegations are that he was more heavily involved uh, in, the, in the drug market. Going back in a little bit of you know a bit of story, so I'll get to the corruption bit. But um, eventually, Secretary Delima came in and um, had the uh, well 19 drug drug lords isolated in Building 14, which is the isolation part of um, New Billetwood Prison. Um, but stayed outside; he wasn't included in that. So there's two two schools of thought to that. And, and um, Secretary Delima has been uh, alleged that she was part of that. And I'm not, you know, I. You know, I probably shouldn't say anything uh, either way, but I, you know, I, I respected in what she was trying to do, and I, I saw some really positive signs to the 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 prison system as a result of her work. However, it was I think some of her staff that got involved in um, in uh, with that leadership structure, and that's where the sort of allegations uh, became more solid, if I can put it that way, in relation to uh, proceedings. So. You can, you can you can crack down, or you can say, well, the gang system is the, is is at fault in relation to the drug drug industry, and and they're the ones who were promoting the corruption. But I think the 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 whole drug market was facilitated from both ends, from the from the from the staff and the prison, as well as the guards. And and corruption was the most uh, it was the is the is the biggest problem in the whole prison system. At one point in time, when um, who was head of Bureau of Corrections, was there. We were looking at alternative income streams because one of the biggest problems with corruption with guards and, and money that comes from the drug market within the prison is the social service aspect of it. Now, we don't think about, we think about the criminal aspect, but the money from the drug market, a lot of it used to go to, to uh, pay for families. So once, once you take away the drug market, which was an important thing, they had to do something about the drugs. And I, and I do commend the president in one sense for, for his hard line on drugs. Something had to happen. It was, it was in a bit of a crisis perspective. But if you take away the, the, the money or the, the money from the drug market, um, what we were trying to do is create alternative income streams by increasing manufacturing within the prison system, by trying to look for alternative money to support the inmates, to support the families. But even when we tried to do that, um, and to give you an example, an Australian company, a, a wood, wood toy manufacturing company, we tried to get established within the prison. But the gangs wanted 30%. The guards wanted a percentage. And it just was not viable for the Australian company. So that sort of idea about trying to... Uh, because corruption is a, is a big thing. Everything gets skimmed. Money gets skimmed off the food rations, the money that comes in for food from the government. Money gets skimmed off for, for the guards. If, if, some, if an inmate wants to move from one place to another, the inmates take, sorry, the guards take money from that. Everything's on a cash-based system and, and sometimes um, officers don't want to be promoted because they want to stay in the position they've got because that's the most place where they're going to get their money. So I remember one guard told me, everyone's got to have a second job. What he means by that is they get so little pay that they've got to look for, you know, there's not enough money 
to, for them to do their job and then support their families, they've got to have extra income. That said, the, the government has done a you know, very positive thing and um, with the Bucal Modernisation Act and uh, BJMP staff have now recently got a, a fairly significant um, pay increase. Let's hope that that's a, you know, a positive step and moving in the right direction. But you know, I, think, I think corruption is a, is a very um, cultural thing. When Secretary de Lima was in there, we did start an um, anti-corruption course with prison staff about not going in to police them or, or ca catch people out, but we went in there to try and get them to talk about uh, and let them know that we know about their, their, that sort of, those sort of practices and, and looking about um, uh, creating strategies for slow change, to look at alternative ways of doing things. Because if you go in there and, and like the President's just done, and, and, and shut things down, you get resistance and fighting. Programs never become sustainable. It just won't work. There's too much opposition. So, you know, if there's going to be change in the Philippine correctional system, it needs to be done slowly. It just sounds so delicate in a way because on, on one hand, of course, we know the problems of corruption in the Philippine prison system. But on the other hand, it feels like it is what underpins the social order of this you know, highly problematic system that's overcrowded, that's very divided, that has an unprofessional um, system. So, yeah, it, it feels like it's like what you said. It's just very much hanging on the balance, you know, and it has to be it, you can't just have abrupt changes because it will just break it. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, how do you eat an elephant, you know, bite by bite? That's the, you know, it's the, it's, it's the same thing, you know, and, and even the work Dr. Narag and I are doing at the moment with BJMP in particular is, is not about um, drastic changes. It's about, you know, we're, if, we're, if we're talking about um, changing the structure or amalgamating jails or whatever we might be doing, it's not about coming in and saying the, the, the Western way of doing things. We, you need to be very culturally specific and specific in how you do things. You've got to work with what you've got. You can't work against it. And, and you know, I, over the last 10 years, the amount of, or well, the millions of dollars I've seen but being donated to the Philippine government from Western governments on how to change the prison system, it's been wasted. You know, and, and I, I say that very strongly. I've seen so much training where, you know, they, um, they select the staff, not based on who needs to do the course because that's the area they're working in, it's who, who needs, who needs a, you know, a, a pat on the back and, a, and a, um, um, some sort of motivation. You know, they, they, they don't select the right people. But the, you know, I'm not getting the words out properly there, but the, the point is the money's getting wasted. So anything that needs to be done now needs to be sustainable. You need to work with what you've got and the change needs to be slow, very slow. And what I'm suggesting in what, we, in what we're doing is we don't only engage the prison staff, we also engage the inmates because they're the ones that create, up, create the opposition. They're the, the force in numbers. We need to engage, and this is why we talk about shared governance. It's very much a shared governance model. In other words, they're also in charge. They do the head counts. They've got the keys. They've got all these things in the prison system, which is, which is crazy if you're from a Western prison system to think that that's the case. But they've got their own sort of policing systems. Now, you need to work with that. That's not going to change. I've seen over the last 10 years um, strategies to remove the gang leaders. And what happens, and what, the first time I remember, um, you know, probably about uh, six or seven years ago, they took all the gang leaders away and they, uh, the prison appointed their own gang leaders. And what do you think happened to those gang leaders? They were severely beaten. You know, the, the inmates elect their own gang leaders and it's not about the biggest, strongest, best fighter gets elected, no. It's about someone who can generate 
the most resources. And I've seen, I've met some uh, really fascinating gang leaders that you just wouldn't expect to be a gang leader. For example, and I'm, you know, please don't take this the wrong way, but um, the, the leader of gang at one point, um, he was gay. Nothing wrong with being gay, but um, he ran the pr prison administration system. He maintained the paperwork. So if you ask, you know, you ask, well, why would he have power? He had a lot of power because he had control of the administration. So, so power is not always in, in muscle and fighting. Mind you, there are some pretty, uh, pretty rough leaders I've, I've met and um, uh, spent some time with, but it's, it's, it's about the greatest, what makes a leader is the ability to generate resources and funds for the gang, for the gang uh, members. And that, that's what creates the power within the, uh, within the uh, prison system. So you have to understand those, those in intricacies of how the, how the system operates to be able to work with the system to create slow change. Which I guess brings us to the end of this podcast in terms of summarizing just all the ideas you put forward in this discussion. And I think it's a good summary in a way, ending on that note, that when we talk about the Philippines needing to be tougher on crime, well, we just have to turn back to your work and talk about how being tough doesn't necessarily mean proper governance. So in summary, Clark, can you tell us your comments on this stereotype, um, the Philippines needs to be tough on crime? Well, I think the, the, the Philippine needs to look, Philippines needs to look to alternatives to tough on crime. In other words, what is happening within society that's generating the drug market or generating the crime? I mean, we, we you know, without going into uh, the South and what's happening in relation to the, uh, you know, around uh, militancy and terrorism. But if we're talking about the, you know, common crime around, uh, around drugs, we've got to look to what, why people turn to drugs. Now, once someone enters the criminal justice system, particularly in the Philippines, it's a very slippery slope from there. The system, I don't think, is robust. I mean, you've really got to start to address the criminal justice system in itself. Raymond Narag, for example, my colleague, close colleague, he was fa falsely sentenced and he did seven years for murder and um, got his conviction quashed and got off. There, there's problems, generic problems within the system. So if you, the more you overload the judicial system, the more likely you're going to get false incarceration or false imprisonment. And, um, you know, you've got to look for alternative social, social support structures, focus more on the, the various communities and regions in the Philippines and, 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 and throw money there. You know, I know the uh, president meant well, but when he went to the jail system, his solution to the jail system to make it uh, more comfortable was to each, give each um, cell a TV. Now, that's, you know, well intended, but what is that going to do? Is that going to fix the system? No. Tough on crime is not going to fix the system. I mean, it's going to push and push and push, and that system, believe me, will break. Wow, that's a powerful insight to end with. So thank you, Clark, for those illuminating comments. Thanks very much. That was New Mandala's Philippines editor, Dr. Nicole Corrado, speaking with Dr. Clark Jones from the Australian National University's Research School of Psychology. He is, along with Dr. Raymond Narag, the co-author of the new book, Inmate Radicalization and Recruitment in Prisons, which is being published by Routledge. Our thanks to Clark for making the time to speak with us. And as we mentioned, this podcast is part three of a series on the Philippines Beyond the Clichés. You'll find the first two episodes at the New Mandala website or the New Mandala SoundCloud page. And if you are listening to this at SoundCloud or at the New Mandala site, remember that you can subscribe to all of our audio releases at iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Just do a search for New Mandala. Thanks for listening. <laughs>